0: We started this series by talking about why is character important, and kind of one of the main points that we saw there, and there's many reasons, but one of the main points is that as we work on godly character, we're preparing ourselves for life in Jesus' kingdom. In a sense, when we're living out godly character, we're anticipating life after Jesus comes back, and we're preparing ourselves to succeed in his kingdom, all right? So godly character is hugely important. It is not just a matter of say a prayer, ask Jesus into your life, and then just kind of coast through life, and then you die and go to heaven. Not at all. Though when you get saved, the all-important work of anticipating life after death begins getting yourself ready for eternity. All right? Really important. In week number two, we looked at the uh, truth that if you're going to become a person of character, it's going to require a lot of hard work. Yes, we need the Holy Spirit. Amen to that. We need to walk with him. None of this character stuff is possible without him. We need to be filled by him. We need his fruit. But if I'm going to become a person of godly character, God needs to work in me and I need to work at it. Anything worth having in this lifetime is going to require some hard work and effort and character is one of the most important, valuable things we can get. Of course, it's going to take a bit of work. And then two weeks ago, Pastor Ray preached a message. And he had tackled our first of the individual character traits, and every week we're just tackling a different trait. And he talked about humility, which is really important. And then uh, him and, and uh, Fran, Mom, they went off on holidays, so they're going on holidays just to give you an update on where they are. They're in Vancouver having a good time. And then last week we looked at the character, character trait, the wonderful character trait, but also the very difficult one, of how do you deal with unfair treatment? And we talked about repaying no one Evil for evil, really important truth, really difficult to live out. And this weekend, I want to tackle steadfastness, all right? Steadfastness. And the Bible has a lot of things to say about steadfastness. And some of what the Bible has to say about steadfastness is incredible, astonishing, it seems almost over the top. And I'm going to read you, a, we're going to see a whole bunch of passages today about steadfastness. But I want to read you, I want to go to James chapter 1, which we've already looked at a few times in this, in this series. But I want to go a little deeper into it today. And I want to show you, the Bible makes some amazing promises but what will happen in your life when you get this character trait of steadfastness let's read James chapter 1 2 to 4 count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect now look at this this is this is unbelievable that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing when you get steadfastness you are going to be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Now, how many of you would like to be perfect and complete? Okay. And some of you, the rest of you just stay in your pit, okay, of sin and (laughs) bad character. Because if you would like to be perfect and complete, the Bible says that's an amazing thing to say about one character trait. He says about one character trait. He says steadfastness. You get steadfastness when steadfastness takes its full effect in you. You'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, perfect and complete, he's talking there about breadth of character and perfect, he's talking about depth of character. You know, there is something really amazing about steadfastness that somehow steadfastness gets its fingers into all of the different character traits steadfastness somehow touches on all of them, self-control, humility, integrity, not returning evil for evil, steadfastness somehow touches on all of them so that when steadfastness takes its full effect in you, you are complete. In other words, you have the full set of character traits. When you become a person of steadfastness, you also will be a person of self-control, humility, patience, endurance, kindness, all those things. That's steadfastness. But not only does steadfastness give you, you know, breadth of character, does it come with the full set of other character traits, says that when you have steadfastness, you will be perfect. In other words, you will have depth of character as well. When you have steadfastness, you will not just have a shallow level of integrity or a shallow level of self-control or a shallow level of humility. If you have steadfastness, it means that it comes with depth in all of them. It brings depth to all the character traits. So there's something really powerful about steadfastness that will make you, that makes a person perfect and complete. We need steadfastness. You know, it's very interesting as I was getting ready for this message. I could only think of two other character traits where, where the Bible says if you get this one character trait, it comes with a bunch of other ones. And the only other two I could think of were love. A number of times in the scripture says that when you get love, you get a whole bunch of other traits as well. So love doesn't just come by itself, it comes with a bunch. And then there's also humility. So there's, there's something that stands aside. The Bible kind of singles out love and humility and steadfastness. There's something really foundational about those three that if you're going to have any of the rest, you've got to first have those three. They provide the foundation on which the other maybe lesser character traits are, are based on. All right. And in fact, I saw a verse this week that I hadn't noticed before. 2 Th- Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, which ties love and steadfastness together. I want to show you this. Paul prays this prayer for the Thessalonian church. Look at this. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Now, I find that prayer fascinating. Two of the defining character traits of the Trinity are the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And Paul says, he prays this prayer for the Thessalonian church. He says, if you get nothing else... If you can get the love of Christ and you can get, or I mean the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. If you can get those two things, you're going to be victorious and you're going to overcome in your life right to the end of your life. And so we need to have steadfastness. Well, you say? Well, what is steadfastness? Well, in both of these passages here in James chapter 1 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Greek word there that is translated steadfastness is the Greek word hupomenei. Which you can forget right away, but it shows up, I just say it to to explain to you what it is, it shows up 32 different times in the New Testament, and it is translated in four basic ways. It comes out, it's translated either as steadfastness, or patience, or endurance, or patient endurance. Okay? And so throughout the scriptures, there's four components. Steadfastness isn't one thing. It's, there's four things, and they're all tightly related to each other. But there's four components to steadfastness, and we're going to look at all of them in this message. But the four basic components of steadfastness is this. You say, what is steadfastness? Well, one component of steadfastness is this. The ability to wait for an answer to prayer or one of God's promise. The ability to wait. God told you he's going to do something, or you're praying for a miracle or something. Steadfastness, one component of steadfastness is the ability to wait for that thing and not give up a long, 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 long time if necessary. Okay? So steadfastness, one part of steadfastness is the ability to wait. Another part of steadfastness is though it's it's more than waiting, it's also the ability to persevere and bear up under intense suffering, again, under intense pain and trial, a long, 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 long time if necessary. The long, 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 long time if necessary part is really important to all the components of steadfastness, okay? So steadfastness is the ability to wait for an answer to prayer or promise. It's the ability to bear up under pain. Thirdly, it is used in Scripture to talk about persisting in doing good in the face of resistance. So people are resisting you. There's persecution or unfair treatment or harsh treatment or whatever it is. Steadfastness is the ability to, in the face of resistance, the, the forces of the world around you and the people around you are pushing you to not do right. Steadfastness is the ability not to do right once in the face of resistance, but the ability over and over and over and over again, year after year, decade after decade, to continue doing good in the face of resistance. That's steadfastness. And the fourth component that is steadfastness is the ability to hold on to the faith, to hold on to the true faith in Jesus and your walk in Him for a long time. You know, lots of people get started on the Christian faith. I'm getting ahead of myself now, but so what? It's the 11 o'clock service. But anyway, a lot of people start in a Christian faith. Steadfastness isn't about starting. Steadfastness is about finishing. So steadfastness is waiting, it's enduring, it's persisting, it's holding on. Okay? And we're going to go through all of those, but first... Let's ask the Holy Spirit. I want to be perfect and complete. My wife tells me I'm almost there, so (laughs) just just to give you an update. But anyway, but I want to be more, and I know you guys too. So bow your heads and then close your eyes, and let's pray and ask Jesus to, to plant a seed of steadfastness in us today. Thank you, Jesus, for this truth of steadfastness. Lord, I just pray, God, today that I would not get in the way of the message, that the messenger wouldn't get in the way or trip it up. Lord, the message of steadfastness is vital. We need it. Every single believer must have steadfastness. And, Father, I pray that no matter how it comes out today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take it like arrows into our hearts and apply it into our lives, that a seed of steadfastness would be planted in us today, that we would look up to persistence, that we would want persistence, and that we would become people of persistence. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, let's work through the different components. And the first one I want to look at is steadfastness is needed in order to endure suffering. James chapter 10 or 5, verses 10 to 11. James says this, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed, and the word there, blessed, can also be translated happy. So we consider those blessed or happy who remained steadfast. Now, it's interesting, again, we see here in James 5, just the same as James chapter 1. Remember James chapter 1? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you suffer trials of various kinds because it produces steadfastness. Here we see James saying, look at the prophets in the Old Testament. They suffered and had horrible lives and we consider those happy who remain steadfast. So there is something about steadfastness that is so wonderful that in the midst of suffering and trials and horrible circumstances that the people who have steadfastness are somehow happy and blessed and lucky. Okay? Okay? Anyway, we keep going, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James holds up for us, he says, if you want to see kind of in the Bible, the example of steadfastness in suffering, Job is the one. And of course, everybody knows the story of Job. Job is one of the most famous suffering people in all of human history, not just to Christians, but to non-Christians as well. Job suffered as much as a human being can possibly suffer. There may be other people in human history who suffered as much as him, maybe, not very many, but certainly no one has ever suffered more than Job, okay? He lost all of his kids, every single one. I mean, to lose one of your kids is an awful pain that I hope I never have to experience, but there are people in this church who have experienced that. To lose multiple children is just, it's unimaginable. To lose all of your children is just, it's frightening. That is, a, that is a high, 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 very high level of suffering. Not only did he lose all of his kids, he lost all of his possessions. Now, that's not nearly as bad as losing all your kids, but it's still pretty bad. And in addition to that, he lost all of his kids, he lost all of his possessions, he lost his health. And so Job, and Job is held up to us here in James as a person of Steadfast. Now, the interesting thing to me is this, a lot of Christians make the mistake of thinking that anybody who suffers has endured, Okay. A lot of people think, well, I've gone through suffering, so I've endured. Now, here's the thing. Every believer goes through suffering to various levels in your life. Every believer goes through some kind of suffering. But not every believer is steadfast. Not every believer. Just because you've gone through suffering doesn't mean you've endured. That's why James says we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. So just because you've gone through suffering doesn't automatically mean that you've endured. A lot of people, sadly enough, go through suffering and don't endure and don't remain steadfast. Job is not held up to us by James as an example of suffering. He's held up to us as an example of steadfastness. So what is it that Job did that turned his suffering into steadfastness? Well, the answer, uh, we can find the answer in Job chapter 2, verses 7 to 10. We'll read that. What did Job do that turned suffering into steadfastness? Here we go. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. That would be bad, okay? And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now right there is the two temptations. Every person who goes through suffering is going to face two temptations. Whatever the suffering is, from from small suffering to big suffering there's two temptations that are going to hit you when you face suffering and they are curse god and die get mad at god he hasn't come through for you he hasn't taken care of you he doesn't love you he isn't answering your prayers get mad at god and quit and this is why like i said every believer goes through suffering lots of believers don't remain steadfast in suffering because lots of believers get mad at god and quit They quit on their marriage, they quit praying, they quit turning the other cheek. Oh, for a little while, for a year, for two years, for six months, for one or two times, they'll do good. But at some point, they get mad at God and they quit. If that is true, then you have suffered, but you have not endured. Well, what did Job do? But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Guys, never say that to your wives, okay? (laughs) This isn't a marriage message, so we'll just kind of... You speak as one of the foolish women would speak, okay? Anyway, shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job is a picture of steadfastness for us in suffering, because he did not get mad at God, and he refused to quit. And you say, well, what, how did he do that? I mean, how do you have this, then this, then this, and this, all bad, very, very bad, happen to you and not get mad at God? Well, I want to show you in this message two keys steadfastness. We're going to go through different components of steadfastness. But I want to show you two keys that go to the heart of what steadfastness is. And here's steadfastness key number one. Steadfastness key number one is found in Job's statement. Shall I accept good from God and not evil? And what that is, is that is a statement of total submission to the will of God. Pain or pleasure. And this is at the heart of why Job didn't get mad at God. If you're going to be able to endure suffering... And again, not for a little bit. It's one thing, oh, endure suffering for a day or a week. But we're not talking about doing good once. This is a message about steadfastness. We're talking about bearing up under intense suffering for a long period of time and enduring through it. If you're going to endure through suffering over a long period of time, then the first key that you must be is you must be submitted to the will of God, pain or pleasure. Because only if you are submitted will you not be thrown off by suffering. See, here's the problem with a lot of Christians. Every Christian, and I'm, look, I'm not speaking to you guys and not to myself. This is to all of us at various times. But a lot of us Christians are self-deceived. We have the lingo. Everyone would say, I'm submitted to God. But the truth of the matter is, many Christians are following God, but they're not submitted to Him. And what I mean by this is that uh, many Christians are following God so long as He makes their life better, happier, easier. They like going to church. Church kind of pumps them up for the week. You know, they like praying to God. They need a blessing in their business. They like praying to God. There's some good marriage principles in the Bible, and they hope it's going to make their life easier. A lot of Christians are following God so that He'll make their life happier and easier. By the way, there are many great benefits to following God, including one of the byproducts is happiness. One of the byproducts can be a better marriage, yes, But if your goal in life is, I'm following God so that he will make my life easier, you are not submitted to him. You're not submitted to someone if you only do what they want when they they want what you want, right? That's not submission. Submission is, you are the boss, you are the authority, you are in charge, even when you do things that hurt me, even when you do things I don't like. That's submission, And many of us have this orientation that God exists for us instead of us existing for him. Suffering exposes that lack of of submission. And if you're only, you know, I just talked to a guy just recently, uh, uh, and he had turned his life around. He'd been kind of following God now for a couple of months. And, And I was talking to him, and he said this to me, and he was discouraged. He said, you know, since I became a Christian, things have gotten harder. My relationships are harder. And he was discouraged. And I thought to myself, this is the kind of Christians we're turning out in North America now that we think when we become a Christian, it's going to get easier. Of course it's getting harder. Doing the right thing is often hard. Moving out on your girlfriend is going to mess up your relationship a bit. But God wants purity and righteousness. So yes, it's going to be harder. Becoming a Christian, we don't follow God so that life will be easier. We follow God because it's right. He exists and someday we're going to have to stand before Him. And until you get that mentality, you won't be able to bear up under suffering. Because as long as you think God is your your servant, instead of you being his servant, the moment things start to go wrong in your life, you'll be upset because he's not doing his job. His job was to make you happy. You're not happy, therefore you're mad at him. But when you become submitted to the will of God, where it's, shall I, like Job, shall I accept good from God Almighty and not also pain? When you have that kind of submission, then... When the job doesn't come through like you thought it should, when the finances are tight, when sickness hits, you don't get mad at God because you realize that in the grand scheme of things you can give him glory no matter what and that's your job to give him glory. You know, it's interesting. How did Jesus endure the cross? Again, Jesus is also one of our primary examples of steadfastness in the Bible. We'll look at a lot of passages about Jesus here today. How was Jesus able to endure the cross? He went through intense suffering. How is he able to endure that? Well, let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane to find out. Luke chapter 22, 41 to 42. And he, that's Jesus, withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. He's saying, I don't want to have to go through this. Nobody likes suffering. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's the key right there. Submission. Not my will, but yours be done. That's very similar. It's just another way of saying it's the same type of statement as Job made. I'll take good from God and I'll take pain. Submission. Not my will, but yours be done. That is an absolute requirement to be, being able to go through suffering long term. And again, we all go through suffering. But being able to go through suffering long term and not get mad at God and not give up. Not give up on doing right. The key to steadfastness. Not to just breathing. Again, just Being alive while you suffer isn't enduring. Enduring and steadfastness means I go through the suffering without getting mad at God. I go through the suffering and I continue to do right. I continue to pray. I continue to turn the other cheek. I continue to love and serve. That's steadfastness and that requires submission. I want to finish this point by reading to you one of of my favorite passages in the Bible. And this is the prayer of a steadfast and submitted person. This is what it looks like to be submitted to God, to be a steadfast person who will be righteous for long periods of time under intense pain. This is the type of prayer that you pray. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, even though every possible disaster hits me, and my business, and my family... And I don't get that job I wanted. And that thing falls through that I really wanted. And that person doesn't get healed. And that and that and that. Even though every terrible thing possible happens to me in this lifetime, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That is the mindset of a steadfast person. A person who can walk through suffering, not for a day or two or a week or two, but a person who can walk in steadfastness through suffering for years and bear up under it in righteousness. All right, there's more to steadfastness than just enduring through suffering. We also need steadfastness in order to stay the course in life. Say, what do you mean stay the course in life? Well, we all know there's a right way to live life, right? There's one right way and there's thousands of wrong ways. And we all know it's, it's simple. It's not easy to follow the right way. There's a narrow path. It's not easy. I want to stress that. It's not easy. But it's simple. We all know what it is. The, the narrow path is I love God wholeheartedly. I don't love the world. I don't love my career. I don't love sports and those sorts of things. I might enjoy those things. But my passionate love is God all the days of my life. And I serve Him and I live righteously. I take care of the poor and the orphans I'm kind, I'm a person of integrity, I love God wholeheartedly, I serve Him, and I do right. That's the right path in life. We all know that. That's very simple, again, not easy to live. Okay? Now, steadfastness is not the thing needed for you to get on that path. Okay? Steadfastness is not the thing that starts you on that path. Okay? Starting on that path. every Christian at some point has started on that path. Every Christian, you call yourself a Christian, means at some point you confess your sins and ask Jesus into your heart. And every Christian probably has multiple starting points in their life where they got excited and said, I'm gonna follow God. And you get rid of worldliness in your life and you get rid of sin and you get serious about prayer and intimacy with Jesus and you start to follow him and submit to him and you go crazy. You have a start. Every Christian has had various periods, at least one, but probably various periods in their life where they've started on that path. But here's the thing. Starting is not what counts. And steadfastness is the thing that is needed not to start you on the path of loving God. Steadfastness is the thing that keeps you on that path week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade to the end of your life. Many people are, are living off of what they did for God 10 years ago. You know when I got saved, I got just passionate for him. And well, how's your life now? Well, they've been completely apathetic and not loving God at all and, and in bondage to sin for the last 5 or 10 years. But somewhere in the past, they prayed a prayer. Steadfastness is the thing that keeps you on that path. See, because here's the thing about the narrow path. There is massive amounts of resistance against you to walk on that narrow path. There is massive amounts of resistance that pushes against you. Not just every, once a year, twice a year. There is massive amounts of resistance that come against you every moment of every day. The moment you get onto that path, there is immediate resistance. That resistance comes from the inside your flesh and it comes from the outside. That's our culture. And it comes in many forms. It comes in a form of temptations. You get on the path, I'm going to follow God, I'm going to serve Him, and temptations come to ensnare you and drag you into sin. Also, that resistance comes in the form of distractions. Sometimes these are more dangerous than temptations, because it'll be good things. You started on the path of loving God wholeheartedly, and then there's this distraction of a business, and you want to build this business or this hobby, or this sport, and suddenly you're not loving God wholeheartedly, you're still going to church every day, but your thoughts and all of your energy are poured into the things of this world. Distractions push you to take you off that narrow path. Weariness, weariness fights against you. I've been following God for years, you say. Sometimes I'm just tired. Weariness, I just need a break. Weariness pushes against you to take you off that narrow path. And then obstacles, suffering, persecution, unfair treatment, it makes you bitter, that makes you hard, it makes you angry. All of these things conspire against you day after day to push you off the path. Steadfastness is what is needed. It is not enough to say, today I'm turning my life around. What's really important is where are you going to be 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 30 years from now? Will you still be following God? Will you still be fasting and praying and spending time with Him in the Word? Not just a one-week kick or a two-week kick. Steadfastness is the thing that keeps us on the path. Now, Jesus had this to say about the Christian life and how hard the Christian life is in the narrow path. Look at this. this. This whole analogy I've been using in the narrow path is from Jesus. Matthew 7, 13 to 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. Jesus says, if, if you, you don't need steadfastness to, to not live for God. That's easy. That's what your insides want to do. That's what the culture wants you to do. You don't need steadfastness for do that, to do that. And a lot of Christians actually, you know, one of the problems is when we read these parables, we always read them as, if there's a bad person in this parable, then that's the person who hasn't prayed to receive Jesus. That's a person who's not a Christian. Jesus isn't talking to Christians and non-Christians here. He's talking to everyone. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians that take the easy road. And you don't need steadfastness for the easy road. You don't need steadfastness to be apathetic. It's easy to be apathetic. You don't need steadfastness to be worldly. You don't need steadfastness to be caught up in sin and stick to it. You know, to stick to lust and a pornographic addiction doesn't take steadfastness. You can be stuck there very easily. We can be stuck in things very easily. Jesus says, The way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. That's from Jesus. Jesus will never be wrong. That is a statement of fact. It's also a statement of prophecy. More people will take the easy road than the hard road. But for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. Now, I just want to stop. Again, we are doing a disservice to people in this culture, telling them, get saved. Jesus is going to make your life easier. The fact that new believers have this idea in our culture that, oh, wait a minute, things are harder since they came to know Jesus. That should be obvious. That's what Jesus tells people up front. Following the way of Jesus is hard. It's not hard for one day or two days or one week. But to stick on the path in the face of resistance is hard. That leads to life and those who find it are few. That's again a sobering statement. Will Jesus ever be wrong? No. It's a statement of prophecy. It's a statement of fact. Those who end up actually sticking on the narrow path. Many people will start. Only few will finish. I was thinking about this a little bit. I was getting ready for this message, and I was thinking about uh, canoe trips. And by the way, just so you know, I hate canoe trips, okay? I also hate camping, and I hate fishing, just so you all know. And I'm just going to rabbit trail here. I don't even have time to rabbit trail, but you're the last service, so I'll do it anyway. Let me just tell you a quick story about me and Ladon and camping, okay? Uh, I, like I said, I hate camping. Ladon hates camping first two years of our marriage, we had terrible communication, obviously, because both of us thought the other person loved camping. And so, during the first couple years of our marriage, uh, we bought each other camping gifts. We told other people, we got wedding gifts, and birthday gifts, and Christmas gifts. We got expensive sleeping bags, and a propane camping stove, and different camping utensils. And we would go camping in the summer a couple times, and, and because we both thought the other person loved camping, but I hate camping. And finally, it was in our second year of marriage, I still remember crystal clear, I remember having this conversation with her, and somehow it came up, she was organizing some kind of another camping trip, and, and finally I just felt like I needed to be honest with her, and I said to her, can I just tell you something? I said, you know, I really enjoy camping with you. That was a lie, bald-faced lie, but anyway. Uh, but I kept going, sometimes, guys, it's okay to lie, you're just testing things out. Strike that from the record, take that off the CD. But anyway, um, I said, uh, you know, I re- and she said, But I said, you know, it's not my favorite thing to do. And she said, oh, really? And then I thought, then I felt that was kind of the opening that I could really tell her. I said, actually, I hate camping. And she said, really? She said, so do I. I said, what are we doing? (laughs) So, we have never camped since then. That's it. That's done. We don't do it. But anyway, and it's okay. That has nothing to do with the message. But back to canoe trips. That's just background information. Let's think about a canoe trip. You go on a canoe trip. Your destination is down. If your destination is downriver, you don't need to. I mean, you might pull out the paddles and do a little bit of steering, or if the or if the current is very slow, you may help yourself along a little while, uh, a little ways, use a little energy. But you're not going to have to do much work. If your destination is downriver, you basically just float downriver. Okay, you don't need steadfastness to go downriver. But if your destination is upriver, let's say you want to go a two-hour canoe trip upriver, you're going to have to pull out the paddles, and you're going to have to work and sweat and get some blood blisters. Now, that's still not steadfastness. Steadfastness is not you pulling out the paddles and starting upriver. That's not steadfastness yet. It's a good start. It's you getting started. Steadfastness is the thing that makes you stick at it till you get to the destination. Because here's the thing about paddling upriver. It's not enough to go to paddle 10% of the way or 20% of the way or 50% of the way or even 99% of the way. If you just paddle part way or most of the way and then stop paddling, the current of the river will take you back to where you started or worse steadfastness is not the thing that gets you paddling up river. Steadfastness is the character trait in you that says, I will not stop until I actually reach the destination. It makes you stick at it until you actually get there. That's steadfastness. That's what it means to have steadfastness in life. And a lot of Christians think, well, I went hard after God for two years or three years or six months. They think that going part way, or 10 years, or 15 years, and then something happens that makes them cynical, a church falls apart, or bitter, a marriage falls apart, whatever it is, anger, resentment sits in, and they think, I'm just going to coast now, I'm ticked off at God, and I'm just going to coast, and they think that because they followed God for 80% of their life, that somehow that's good. But here's the thing, if you stop before you get to the destination, you're swept back downstream. Steadfastness is not the thing that says, I'm going to go hard after God. It's the thing that says, I'm never going to stop. Because it's finishing that matters. And like I said before, well, Jesus said, the people who actually finish, many are going to start. He, has, he shared another parable where he talks about the, the farmer sowing seeds, and those seeds are people getting started in the kingdom. And then he talks about all the different ways that the seeds get choked out. There's thorns, and there's birds, and there's weeds that grow up and choke them out. And only one out of four of the kingdom seeds actually makes it through and bears fruit. Lots of people get started. In the Christian faith in North America, we are obsessed with starting. Get people saved, get people saved. By the way, I love that. You can't finish unless you've gotten started. But here's the thing. In the Bible, the emphasis is on the finishing, not on the starting. Let me show you a few passages. And I've got pages of passages on my computer here at church. I'll just show you three here. Matthew 10, 21 to 22. Let's talk about finishing. Getting to the destination. Sticking to it. Matthew 10, 21 to 22. Jesus preaches a sermon to his disciples. He says, this is what life's going to be like for you after I leave. He says, brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But... The one who endures to the end will be saved. Who will be saved? The ones who who start and then turn back or the ones who endure to the end? It's the ones who endure to the end of their lives who are saved. Now, that's something you don't hear in North America here very much. Most of it is just pray a prayer and you're saved. It doesn't matter what. Jesus said, those who endure to the end will be saved. You say, well, that's just one passage. As if one passage of Jesus isn't enough. Well, let's look at another one. Luke 21, Jesus preached another message. This one was about the end times. Some very similar themes. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. So it's going to get easier for you after you follow Jesus. You know, rainbows, lollipops, and sunshine. Money coming out of the sky. You will be hated by all for my name's sake but not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance who pomenes steadfastness. There's that word again. By your endurance. Endurance is not a side issue. It's not, this is one character trait that is a wonderful trait that some Christians have. By your endurance. Through, endurance is the doorway. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, it looks like there's a bit of a contradiction there. You look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, that following Jesus could cost you your life because a, a bunch of you are going to be put to death. Then at the end, in verse 19, he says, by your steadfastness, you will gain your life. Well, obviously, he's, he's not talking about gaining your physical life. I mean, right now in the world, right now, following Jesus and being steadfast to Jesus can be a leading cause of death depending on where you live. I mean, I looked up a bunch of stats and, and most experts agree that last year in 2009 somewhere around 175,000 Christians died for being steadfast to Jesus. Okay? So, being steadfast, Jesus obviously here is not talking about gaining your physical life. So, when I looked at that, I thought, you know, i got to look into this a bit more. I looked up the Greek word that is translated there, the gain your lives. I wanted to know, what is that word, their lives? And it's the Greek word, suche. Now, suche, and I listened to it online, so I'm saying it right. Anyway... <laughs> Sukhe does not mean physical life. It is never your body. It's never your physical life. Sukhe means uh, soul or spirit. Let's reread that passage now. Jesus is saying, by your endurance, by sticking to it, not by starting, by sticking to the faith in the face of severe resistance, persecution, temptations, distractions, by your, pers- your endurance, your steadfastness, you will gain your souls. He's talking about eternity. See, it's steadfastness is an absolute requirement. Living for Jesus to the end of your life is an absolute requirement of following Jesus. We must persist and persevere in loving Jesus and doing good and continue in these things over time. Let me read you Romans chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Now, wait a minute. Won't God give to each person according to what they have prayed to ask Jesus into their heart? No. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence, who pomenay steadfastness. To those who by persistence over time, continuously in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, even if they hide that self-seeking under the, under the name of Christianity... But to those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Now, some of you are sitting there and you're going, this is depressing and condemning. Let me tell you, actually no, this is a freeing, wonderful truth. Let me tell you two reasons why. This is happy truth. Remember before, consider those who are steadfast, they are blessed and happy. Let me tell you why this is happy. First of all, if finishing is what matters, then you can put your past behind you. Yes, You are sitting here today and you're saying, I feel condemned about this message because I've got 10 years of apathy behind me or six months or six weeks. I fell off the wagon. I'm in sin. I'm totally distracted. I followed God once many years ago and I haven't for a long time. I feel condemned. Well, if finishing is is what matters, you can put every moment in your past up to this moment behind you right now because it's what's in the future that matters. Finishing is more important than starting. You need steadfastness now to say, I will get back on the path. The second thing I want to say is this, that is very encouraging, is steadfastness is not the same as perfection. When I'm talking about being steadfast day after day, year after year, decade after decade, until the end of your life, it doesn't mean you have to be perfect and never sin every day to the end of your life. That's not steadfastness at all. Steadfastness is not that you never mess up. It's that even when you mess up, you never give up. Steadfastness, let me repeat that again, is not that you never mess up. It's that no matter how many times you mess up, you never give up. Let me read you a passage of scripture that you are going to love. And if you don't love it, there's something seriously wrong with you. Proverbs 24, 16. 4. Though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. The defining characteristic of a righteous person is not that he never falls. The defining characteristic of a righteous person is that he falls seven times, seven hundred times, seven thousand times and every time he gets back up. Steadfastness is not that you will never come off the narrow path of loving God wholeheartedly and serving Him. We will all come off the path many, 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 many times. Steadfastness won't let you stay off the path. Steadfastness won't let you wallow in your sin and wallow in your apathy. Steadfastness slaps you in the face and says, get back on the horse. But look what happens to the wicked. But the wicked are brought down by calamity. The righteous person falls and gets up. The righteous person comes off the narrow path. He gets back on the narrow path. That's what really matters. Steadfastness. You persist in doing good. You know, a number of years ago, uh, when I first started here at the church, I was one of the leaders here, and I was praying with him at a prayer meeting. I forget what the prayer meeting was. Um, but anyway, we were in a prayer meeting. with other people around, and we were praying in a pair. And as the meeting was going on, and I'd known this guy for a while and worked with him for a while, and, and we each knew each other real well, Uh, I knew the areas where he had been in defeat in his life, he knew mine, and we would confessed to each other many times. Anyway, as we're praying during this prayer meeting, I sense a bit of a block. Prayer meeting's going on, going on, and I'm just sensing something's not quite right, there's a block here. We're not breaking through, we're not hitting into that spirit prayer which is wonderful and smooth and amazing. And, and so as I'm thinking about it, we're praying, the prayer meeting keeps going on, going on. And this thought finally comes to me. It's like I, there was this one area in his life where he had been in defeat, in defeat a number of times in his life. And I, and I thought, this thought comes, I wonder if he's in defeat in that area of his life again. And I didn't say anything. Finally, we kept praying. Finally, at one point, I finally just, I stopped him. I said, you know, maybe it was last night's pizza or a rotten donut from a month ago or something. But notice again, it's not thus saith the Lord, you are in sin. Never do that that's stupid, okay, and bad. Anyway, just to reinforce, okay, I said, maybe, possibly, is it potentially, and if not, just throw it away, that you are possibly in defeat in this area again in your life. And he, was, he looked kind of chagrined, and he said, yes. I said, how long have we known each other? We've been in this permitting this whole time. Why don't you confess that, that at the beginning? We could deal with it. He said, well, I'm just, I'm tired of confessing it. I said, You're tired of confessing it. If you're tired of confessing it, that means you're defeated. See, steadfastness is not that you never mess up. It's that you never tire of getting back up. And if you're tired of confessing it and coming against it, only then are you defeated. See, especially when it comes to this thing of character. Here's the thing. You're trying to get rid of some bad character in your life, or you're trying to add some godly character into your life. Um, you're talking about overcoming, depending how old you are, you're talking about overcoming habits that are 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. You don't overcome those things with one quick prayer. You know, you've been an impatient, you know, mean, angry person for 35 years. You don't just say, Lord, sorry that I've been so angry and mean, and oh, you're done. We wouldn't need steadfastness then, would we? If, If life worked that way. That's not how life works. So when you confess and you come against that thing the first time, God goes, oh, I love it, son. I love it, daughter. I love that you're doing that. But he also, in his sovereignty, can see the whole future. And he can see that it's going to take you 3,467 more confessions until you're delivered of it. So he sees the whole road. And when you come to him on confession number two, he's not disillusioned. Because he knew it was going to take you through that one. And confession number three, he's not tired of hearing you say sorry. Because he knows you've got to go all the way to here before you're delivered. He's happy. He's happy. But we don't have his perspective. And so what happens is we say sorry once, we're pumped. A week later, we say sorry again. A week later, we say sorry again. Now we're starting to feel a little bad, like, Ay, yi, yi, what's the matter with me? And then you say sorry again. And then you say sorry again. And now your sorry starts to get weaker and weaker and weaker, and you're starting to give up. Steadfastness is the thing that says, I will keep saying sorry and coming against this thing until the end. And I will never give up. That's steadfastness. I will not give up after 10 confessions or 25 confessions or 30 confessions. I will not get up. give up until this thing is gone. Of course, that brings up the question right away is, when is enough enough? Like, how many confessions, Lord, have I done enough and now I can just give up? And not just on confession, but you've been praying about a marriage thing and you've had an unhappy marriage and it's just not working out. And you've been praying about it for 5, six, seven, eight, 10, 15 years. And it's not turning around. You say, how long is long enough? When have I persisted long enough? And you know what? That's a legitimate, and it could be any situation. A marriage, a character issue. You're praying for a miracle. Some area of your life. You just, and it's a good thing. It's a good prayer request. God's given you promises. And you've been praying two, three, four years and you still don't have it. And so the question comes, how long is long enough? Well, that's a good question. It comes out of our pain And the Psalms have that question all over in the Psalms. How long, O Lord, David says over and over again. How long, O Lord? It's an okay question to ask, but there's a danger in asking that question because sometimes that question masks the fact that you're actually getting upset at God and you're looking for a way out. You're looking for a way to say, hey, I tried at this marriage for 10 years. I can righteously walk away now. I tried to change this character trait for five years. It didn't change. I can righteously give up now. So the question is, how long is long enough? Well, let's look in the scriptures, Hebrews chapter 12. How long is long enough? And uh, Hebrews is not primarily about suffering. It's a theological book. It's about, it's a, it's, it, it deals with who is Jesus, what did he do for us on the cross. But the people who are reading the book were going through intense, fiery trials. So in chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who that is. There's all kinds of fighting about it. But anyway, um, the writer of Hebrews addresses the question of how long do they have to hold out? Here's his encouragement. Consider him, that's Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. So don't give up. Look at Jesus, look what he endured, and don't give up. Here's why. Now, here's the encouragement. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. How do you like that for encouragement? (laughs) Here's the encouragement. Look at Jesus, he resisted to the point of death. Be encouraged. You haven't died yet. (laughs) You haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood yet, so don't get tired. In other words, you want to know what the Bible teaches about how long is long enough? How long do I suffer righteously in an unhappy marriage? How long do I fight and fast and and come against this character problem? How long do I pray about this promise and this answer to prayer? Here, the Bible gives you, there's only two ending points. You persist and remain steadfast until either you overcome or you die. That's steadfastness. Anything less is not steadfastness. Steadfastness is I will never give up. I will die or I will receive it, but I will never, never give up. I will not stop doing the right thing. I will not stop coming against this thing. You say, this is depressing. No, it's only depressing if your hope is in this lifetime, not the next one. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. And if you read this verse in your Bibles, it's in red letters. It's directly from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus, speaking to the church in Smyrna, and the church in Smyrna is about to go undergo awful persecution from the hands of the devil himself. Look at what Jesus says to them. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Now, the ten days there is not referring to a literal ten days. But I'm not going to get into all that. Anyway, here's what Jesus says. Be faithful unto death. Don't be faithful part way. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't be faithful for a week. Don't be faithful for a month. Don't be faithful into prison. Be faithful Unto death. Why? And I will give you the crown of life. Jesus puts a high calling. You want to be a follower of Jesus and call yourself a Christian, there is a high calling on your life. It's not be a little bit faithful or be mostly faithful. It's be faithful unto death if you want to receive the crown of life. And this is the heart of steadfastness. Steadfast people are willing to lose everything, suffer through anything, resist sin without tiring, persevere and persist without ceasing and at all costs in this lifetime, not because they're super tough, but because they're looking for a better reward in the next. And this is steadfastness key number two. Steadfastness key number one was you must be submitted to the will of God, pain or pleasure. Steadfastness key number two is you must get a vision for eternity. You cannot, you you can suffer things, yes, without having a vision for eternity. But you cannot be steadfast through long periods of suffering unless you get a vision for eternity. How are you going to go through intensely bad times in your business, in your family, in your marriage, in your health, unless you have a hope in a different lifetime? You can't. You must be willing to die to everything you want in this lifetime in order to do the right thing so that you can receive a better reward. Let me use the example again of an unhappy marriage. And I think it's just a good example for this message. But again, it applies to everything. But if your hope is for happiness in this lifetime, how can you be steadfast in an unhappy marriage? You can't. You you can't do it. Now, is it bad to want to be happy? No, happiness is a wonderful thing. And again, it's a byproduct of following Jesus. It can be. It's awesome. But if your goal is happiness in this lifetime instead of happiness in the next, you won't be able to sacrifice what you need to in this lifetime in order to live righteously in that unhappy marriage. And what will happen is you will fight and claw your spouse to get happiness. And when you don't get it, you'll become a ball of negativity, complaining to everyone and everything about how bad your marriage is and how bad your spouse is. Because you're hoping to get happiness now, but when you get a vision, the moment you shift your life and you get a vision for a better happiness and a better reward, now suddenly you can make the sacrifices needed in order to serve a spouse who's ungrateful, in order to love a spouse that won't return that love, and you can persist in it, not just do it for a week or a month or a year, but you can persist and be faithful unto death because you have hope for a better reward. And that same thing holds true, not just for marriage, but in turning the other cheek. Someone's taking advantage of you at work, or treating you unfairly. And without getting bitter, you can be righteous in that. You can be godly in that, because your hope is for a better reward. Let's go back again to Romans 2, 6-8. And I want to highlight a different part of that verse. We read this before. But God will give each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good. Now, how are they able to persist? how are they able to persist in doing good? What are they doing? They are seeking glory, honor, and immortality. The reason they're able to persist in doing good is because they're seeking glory, honor, and immortality. They're looking to the next life. So they're able to sacrifice temporary happiness and do the right thing. This is why Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is why Paul was able to go through suffering, not once or twice, but over and over and over and over and over and over again. He was able to live a life of suffering because he had given up hope of gain in this life. He only wanted gain after he died. And until you settle that in your mind, you won't be able to say, for to me to live is Christ. As long as you have hope of gain in this lifetime, for to me to live is me. But when you say, I'm looking for my reward in the next lifetime, now you can say, for to me to live is Christ. And you know, last week I taught that that message on, that is so central, this whole thing of steadfastness is this thing of not repaying evil for evil, turning the other cheek. That is a very difficult thing to do. It's difficult to do it once, but to do it over and over again, I know that some of you will still be shaking your heads and thinking to yourselves, it doesn't work in the real world. If I turn the other cheek, I will lose all my money, I'll lose all my assets, I'll lose my business because it doesn't work in this world and we want to know who's going to protect my stuff. Well, here's the thing. When you start living for to me to live as Christ and die is gain, when you get your eyes on gain in the next life instead of this one, it changes the whole question. You stop asking who's defending me and you start asking how can I get rich after I die? Look at how that look at the Hebrews. Look at look at how it turns life upside down. The Christian ethic is a completely upside down ethic to the way we live in this world. We want Jesus to protect our businesses. Look at what these guys did. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Do you see how it flips around? They weren't going, oh God, if I turn the other cheek, I'm going to lose my business. They were saying, take my business. I want to be rich in the next life. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Turning the other cheek and not repaying evil for evil goes hand in hand with for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Since, what were they looking for? Look at this. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Key to steadfastness is you must get a vision for reward in the next life. And let me just finish with this last point. I'll just skim over this here. Steadfastness is needed to endure suffering. Steadfastness is needed in order to stay the course. Lastly, steadfastness is needed in order to wait for God's promises. And many of us have received promises from God. And, and probably everybody here, almost, most people who have ever asked Jesus in their life, at some point, God's given you a promise. And you've prayed. And God promised you He was going to do this. He was going to take this away from you. Or He was going to change your character in this. Or He was going to make you this type of a person. You had a baby 25 years ago, and God said, I'm going to use this person for the kingdom. And now they've grown up, and they're not walking with Jesus. Or God said, I'm going to put, you're going to do great things in ministry. I'm going to make you fruitful, or or I'm going to heal you, or whatever it is. Somewhere in your life, almost everyone here today has received a promise from God. God spoke to you, said, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. Now, here's what happens with most of us. We get that promise, yes. For one week, we are pumped. We are praying about it. We're telling everybody about it. On the second week, we're still mostly pumped. We're pretty excited about it. (laughs) After a month, we have a warm glow in our hearts whenever we think about it. Okay? After six months, every once in a while at a prayer summit, it might come up in our minds. And after a year, that promise is completely on a shelf. And now it's so many years ago, many of us don't even remember the promises God's given us. I bet you almost every one of us here, there are promises in our lives that are dusty and cobwebbed right now. And we've actually just totally forgotten about it. And the reason we forgot about it is because we don't have steadfastness. We didn't write it down. We didn't take it seriously. We just thought, great, a promise, but we didn't stick to it. Now here's the problem with that. If God gives you a promise and you put it, up, put it on a shelf and you don't persist and you don't remain steadfast, there's a good chance you won't ever get the promise. Did you know that? Because did you know that God can give a promise and you not receive it? Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 10.36. For you have need of endurance, who pomenay steadfastness. There it is again. You have need of endurance. Why? So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what He promised. Many people are not receiving what God has promised. God is he tells the truth. If he gives you a promise, he wants to give it to you, he will give it to you, but you need to have steadfastness in order to get it, in order to take hold of it. And again, the question is, how long is long enough? I prayed about that thing six months. I prayed for my marriage two years. I prayed for my kid, you know, one and a half years or three years. Let's look at the 30-second overview of Abraham's life. Abraham is 75 years old. Genesis chapter 12, verses one to four. Abraham was 75 years old. God comes and gives him a promise. He says, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you. And Abraham goes, pfft. I don't have anyone to pass it on to, and I'm almost dead. 75 years old, God says, oh, ah, you don't have a kid. Yeah, he didn't actually react like that, but anyway, God's never surprised. But makes the story better. Anyway, he says, oh, no, you don't have a kid. Okay, Abraham, I'm going to give you a kid. Abraham gets excited. We all get excited when God gives us a promise. That's an amazing promise. 75 years old, him and Sarah are way past having kids. They're basically dead in their bodies, Paul said. 75 years old, you're going to have a kid. 76, no kids yet, 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, 13 years. How many of you ever persisted with something? 13 years. Now, after 13 years, they started to have some doubts. Now, many of us, it wouldn't take 13 years. It would take 13 days, and we'd have doubts. <laughs> Sarah comes to Abraham and she said, do we really, uh, hmm, something's wrong here, Abraham. I don't think the promise is through me. Obviously, it's too impossible. And it's been 13 years. Well, Obviously, God meant the servant girl, so you need to have a kid through her. Now, guys, it doesn't matter what she says. At this point, you should say no, okay? No, 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 okay? Abraham, duh, okay. Bad. All kinds of fun. We still have problems in the Middle East because of that, okay? It's still in the news. Anyway, he has Ishmael. God says, no, 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 that's not the promise. What? I've waited 13 years. It's got to be the promise. Obviously, you wanted me to help this thing along. No, that's not the promise. You're going to have to wait some longer. 87, 88, 89, 90. It's been 15 years. 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. He's 95 years old. Still no baby. He's, I mean, it was impossible at 75. It's super impossible at 95. 96, 97, 98, 99, 24 years. God shows up at Abraham's tent. He says, next year you're going, have a, you're going to have a kid. And Sarah's inside the tent and she laughs. So that's ridiculous. God says, why did Sarah laugh? He said, I didn't laugh. You did laugh. I didn't laugh. They go back and forth. It's all in Genesis. You can read it this week. But anyway, one year later, they get the promise. 100 years old, 25 years to receive the promise. And I ask you, how long is long enough? You don't put that thing on a shelf. When God has given you a promise, you write that thing down. You make a commitment. Steadfastness is the thing that says, I will never, never give up. I will not put this thing on a shelf. I will not stop praying. And I won't just do this for a year or two years or three years. I will do this indefinitely. I will do it until I receive it or until I die. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Jesus, I pray that you would bring to our minds those promises that you have given us, Lord, that we have put on a shelf We have disregarded your promises. We failed to write them down. We failed to memorize them. We failed to tell people about them. We've forgotten about them. Jesus, those promises, those pearls that you've given us in our lifetimes, God, bring them back to our minds this week. We want to write them down. We want to commit ourselves in steadfastness. We will pray these things into being until we die or until we get them. Lord Jesus, there are promises on the shelf that are on the shelf right now, right here for people whose grown kids aren't following you. Jesus, those promises, we want to see them come true. And Lord Jesus, there are all kinds of promises for families and jobs and businesses and ministries and character. Jesus, may we take those promises off the shelf. May we not give up ever, ever, ever. Jesus, we commit ourselves steadfastness. May we become people of steadfastness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.